I would like to ask that you turn in your Bibles or pew Bibles to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 23. Even though this is Palm Sunday, I want to look ahead to Good Friday. Why did he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem? Why did he come? Why did he go there? We want to see Jesus on his cross and salvation that is wrought there. Luke 23. We will begin reading, actually, at verse 26. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, storm our hearts with your grace this morning. May the Holy Spirit, who alone can apply the word to the heart, who alone can change the the leopard spots, may he do so today. May you be at work within our minds and within our souls convicting and converting and transforming and changing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 26. This is the word of God. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. My emotions are never more in conflict than when I preach such a text as this one. The message is so immense, it is so grand, it is so glorious and great. Who can manage it? Consider the weight of such a thing to preach and to dwell upon. But what a privilege we have as the people of God that we can gather here today and we can hear such a text read and such a text expounded, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is freely preached among us. Man is so degraded that he does not see that he cannot be forgiven without the punishment of his sin on God's own Son. But let us never for a moment forget that Jesus came to die. And as we look on the thief on the cross, we see why Jesus came to die. Now let us view this thief who believes in light of all that is happening here. And the first thing that I want you to see is full atonement is being made by Jesus on the cross. Full atonement. That's the first thing. Full atonement. When we see this text and others like it in the Gospels, we find Jesus Christ going to a cross, and there the physical suffering is immense. Crucifixion was a Roman invention. No Roman citizen was ever crucified. Cicero said the extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves was crucifixion, the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. Indeed it was. And here is Jesus suffering on a cross as if he were a common criminal, bearing the sins of his people in public suffering and shame. Yes, when Adam sinned, he was clothed. The last Adam comes and he is naked before men and before God in order that he might clothe you with his perfect righteousness. The emotional sufferings, of course, were far, far deeper than the physical sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were immense and incalculable, especially since the suffering is deeper than man could see. For the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jehovah, the Son of the Father, taking flesh, goes to the cross. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. There he is, the second person of the Trinity who became man, suffering naked to the wrath of Almighty God as a substitute in the place of sinners like you and like me. Indeed, crucifixion was not even mentioned in polite society in the Roman world. But we glory in the cross, for more is happening on that cross than man could see. Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the substitute for sinners on that cross. We must see all that is happening here in light of the fact that He is making full atonement for the sins of sinners like you and like me on that cross. A substitute who accomplished redemption for his people, reconciliation, justification, who satisfied and removed the divine wrath against us because of our sin if we believe in him. Lift high the cross, people of God. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See him removing the wrath of God forever for his people. You might ask, why this constant emphasis on the cross, on atonement, on the blood of Christ from this pulpit? You will never come here that you don't hear about Christ and what he did for sinners. Why this constant emphasis? Couldn't God just forgive? If we ever understood sin, we would never think that God could simply forgive. 
Mere amnesty would have abolished the law of God. God must abdicate his throne were he simply to forgive. If he does not punish sin, he is not God. He is not just. He is not holy. To justify the ungodly sinner, his law must be satisfied. The penalty must be paid. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. No, I say it reverently, God could not simply have, by divine fiat, forgiven sin. Sin must be punished, either in you and me, or our sinless substitute on the cross. For God hates sin. It is unimaginably loathsome to God in His holiness and righteousness. And had He not punished Sin as the way to forgive us. The angels could no longer have sung holy, holy, holy before the throne. And that is why atonement is so astounding. Because God pardons my sin while remaining just. God pardons my sin while remaining holy. God pardons my sin with no sacrifice of His righteousness. But every bit of His righteousness is met by Jesus Christ who obeyed the law and paid its penalty on the cross. Yes, what is happening here in Luke's Gospel is that full atonement for sin is being made. Complete atonement for sin. Particular atonement. Substitutionary atonement. A finished atonement. An infinitely valuable atonement that can cover the worst sins of the worst of sinners. That is what is happening here. Now as we move along, we see that there are two criminals. This is second. There are two criminals that are crucified on either side of our Lord. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that these men were thieves. Luke says they were criminals or malefactors. They were vicious men. All four Gospels make plain that Jesus was not crucified alone. The cross and prophecy are brought together, for Isaiah the prophet said he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors. The sinless, holy Son of God on a cross, crucified between two vicious men, numbered among the transgressors because he came for transgressors. And those who on either side of him are crucified, are justly punished. Indeed, we read in verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. These two sinners next to the sinless substitute for sinners. You see, I deserve to die. I am responsible for my sin. My burden would cast me into hell were I not relieved by what Jesus did on the cross. Pardon me if I am so blunt with you, but I think at the day of judgment you will never mind that the preacher was too plain with you. We are fallen creatures. We are not good. We are bad to the core. We are rotten in our sin. We were created perfect in Adam. Adam fell. The whole race fell in him. We are sinners from birth. I am monstrous in my iniquity and rebellion against the holy and the righteous God. I am utterly monstrous in living in my rebellion against His holiness. I deserve hell. I have lived against the light of my own conscience. And I love my sin by nature apart from Christ. And that is true of every one of you as well. 
You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer. And Jesus Christ hanging upon a cross between these two thieves, Jesus came to save sinners. There is no truth so wonderful, no truth so marvelous, no truth so stupendous, no truth so solemn, no truth that shows up sin for what it is and gives us relief from it. And so we who have come to trust in Christ will more and more say, Sin, I want no part of you. Look what it costs to pardon me from my awful sins. John Murray quotes Octavius Winslow's famous statement, It was the Father who delivered him up, not the hosts of darkness. And Winslow says, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Oh, indeed it is true, is it not? There you have these two thieves. But then as we move on in the text, we find, thirdly, conversion. Conversion. Matthew and Mark make clear that both thieves at first mocked Jesus. And here in Luke 23, in verse 39, we read, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And thus, mocking Jesus, adding to his sin as he hung next to the substitute for sinners. But suddenly, there is a change in one of them. That change is evidenced in verses 40 and 41. Look at it. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man begins to accept Jesus' claims as true. These are words of confession. The Holy Spirit is revealing to this man something of who Jesus is as the Savior. The Holy Spirit convinced this thief of his sin and misery. His conscience that once was hard was now stamped with sorrow. Godly sorrow is working repentance not to be repented of. Maybe that's someone here this morning. You have come here with this tremendous load of guilt. You know that you are a sinner. You have been on the run from the law of God, on the run from the God of justice, on the run from your own conscience. And you try to forget it. You try and try to forget it. But it only gets worse and worse. Sin is an insult to God. You know if you stay where you are that you are headed toward a terrible deathbed. But this thief, this thief believes and repents. What is the fundamental nature of true repentance? Oh, how I long to see sinners once again truly repent on gospel terms, don't you? What is true repentance? True repentance is Godward. Do you not fear God, says this thief who is being converted by the Spirit of God? Do you not fear God? His conscience knew that there was a lawgiver, that he must give an account to that lawgiver, And it is driven home by the Holy Spirit because this man now is beginning to see something of the enormity of his sin. Now, I don't know for you what the word enormity might invoke. Perhaps some great mountain. Perhaps some vast sea. Perhaps the endless sky as you look into the night. But our sin is greater than that. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and therefore our sin is deserving of infinite, His infinite displeasure. 
This man is beginning to see the enormity of his sin and to have a true sense of his demerit before God. It is possible for a sinner to fear hell and yet not want Christ. It is possible for a sinner to fear hell yet have no sense of his own hell-deservedness. It is one thing to say, I am not willing to be damned. It is another thing to say, I am willing to be Christ's. But this thief wants to be Christ's. He comes to Christ. You see the scene? If the wrath of God caused his own son to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What will sinners cry who do not know Christ? And this man knows he is about to go into eternity and to stand in the presence of the holy and the living God. And a true sense of sin not only, not only acknowledges the offense, but a true sense of sin vindicates the justice of God. When we have a true sense of sin produced by the work of the Spirit of God, then we cry out, Lord, you are just. You are just if you send me to hell. You are just if you punish me together. I have, I have sinned against your righteousness. Do you understand that you must be converted? Let me use that old-fashioned word, saved. Do you understand you need to be saved from your sins? That nothing but the blood can remove your sins? No angel could convert you. No angel could save you. No philosopher can save you. No other human could save you. No religion can save you. Not all of the creatures of God together could save you. Only God could do this, taking human nature, for without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. And it must be the infinitely valuable blood of the Son of God to save you from your sins. So this thief is converted who believes in Jesus as he hangs next to him on a cross. But then fourthly, let's ask the question, by what means is he converted? By what means is he changed? Well, the Holy Spirit changed his heart, of course. The Spirit of God enlightened his understanding. But by what means? What means did the Spirit give? There was no preacher there. There was no one such as your minister this morning proclaiming the word of grace. How was this man converted? My friends, it was by the evangelism before his very eyes. Uh, the Savior's enemies who cry out against him using the very words of Scripture. The testimony of the friends of Jesus, the women who are there, and John. Jesus' conduct. Oh, what, what holy conduct. What utterly and completely holy conduct of Jesus as he shed his blood on the cross. Even praying for his enemies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The very act of redemption is before the eyes of this thief, this malefactor, and possibly he read the inscription, this is the king of the Jews. Now, I don't know that he read that inscription, but I know that you can read it. We all can read it. And this man cried out in the language of prayer with just a few fragments of the truth. And perhaps you've come here this morning and you don't know a lot about Christ and you don't know a lot about the Bible and you don't know a lot about theology, but you know this, you're a sinner and the minister from God's word is preaching to you that Jesus saves sinners 
believe in Jesus just as did this thief. The Holy Spirit granted faith to this thief on the cross. Simple faith. He felt the need. He embraced the remedy. Do you feel the need? Embrace the remedy. Someone here is convicted of sin, undoubtedly. Lean for eternity on Jesus. Never did a soul perish that trusted Christ by faith. But then fifthly, I want you to see Christ's promise in this passage. And is it not a glorious and wondrous promise? Read again verses 42 and 43. And he said, that is, that thief said, that converted malefactor said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now the scriptures never teach the the awful doctrine of soul sleep. That when you die, that's it. The scriptures teach that When you die, if you're a believer in Jesus, trusting in him alone for your salvation, you will be immediately in heaven. And if you do not, then you will be in torments forever. That's what the scriptures teach. Actually, today is in the emphatic position in the Greek text. I say that because Jehovah's Witnesses were at my door the other day. I spent from... 11.15 to a quarter of one, preaching the gospel to them. When they left, I was still calling them to Jesus, calling them to faith in Christ. Probably heard it all over the neighborhood. But you know what they say in their very confused translation of this passage. uh, They read it something like this. uh, Truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Not, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, but truly I say to you, today, I'm just saying this to you today, you will be with me. Well, that won't work. It won't work because the Greek text won't allow it because today is in the emphatic position in the Greek text. The Greek text actually says, today with me you will be in paradise. Now that's God's promise. And all this thief did was to ask to be remembered, and Christ gave him heaven. Why are we so slow to think that the Savior will bless us? Christ died for us, didn't he? He knew God's people could never be with him unless he bore our sins. He knows they will be with him by his death on the cross. Think of it. Jesus can promise you. You will be with me when you die in paradise. You will be with me in my heavenly home. He can promise you that. It's an absolute certainty. I promise you, believer, you've trusted in my name. You believed in me. My shed blood has forgiven you. You will be with me when you die in heaven. He can promise that. It's like, it's like a, a check that he's given you that you can write on. It's a promise given to faith. He took the weight of eternal death. He took eternal wrath. And so he says, verily, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is not a matter of doubt. I will take your guilt away. The Christian has no reason to dread the future. Oh, the power of Christ's death to save sinners. How could this man be saved by good character, I ask you? What could he do, this thief? Could he read a philosopher? Could he, uh, could he read about uh, religion? 
try and make up his mind about things? Um, could, he, could he do something good for someone and think by doing something good I'm earning merit with God? Why, this man couldn't even be baptized. This man couldn't come to the Lord's Supper, could he? There is nothing this thief could do. He was nailed to a cross, but because of the sinless substitute nailed on that cross next to him, it was all of grace from first to last, and the danger of self-righteousness into which we all fall by nature was removed from his heart, and he simply trusted in Jesus. It's simple trust in Christ. No work that you perform, nothing that you do, nothing you could ever think or dream. It is all of grace. My friend Charles Spurgeon told a story. I actually brought it with me because I want you to hear what he said. Spurgeon says, have you ever, have you ever heard of him who dreamed that he stood without the gate of heaven And while there he heard sweet music from a band of venerable persons who were on their way to glory, they entered the celestial portals and there they were greeted, rejoicing and shouting, inquiring, what are these? He was told they were the goodly fellowship of the prophets. He sighed and said, alas, I am not one of those. He waited a while and another band of shining ones drew nigh who also entered heaven with hallelujahs, and when he inquired, Who are these, and whence came they? The answer was, These are the glorious company of the apostles. Again he sighed, and he said, I cannot enter with them. Then came another body of men, white-robed and bearing palms in their hands, who marched amid great acclamation into the golden city. These he learned were the noble army of martyrs, and again he wept and said, I cannot enter with these. In the end, he heard the voices of much people and saw a greater multitude advancing among whom he perceived Rahab, Mary Magdalene, David, and Peter, Manasseh, and Saul of Tarsus. And he espied especially the thief who died at the right hand of Jesus. These all entered in a strange company. Then he eagerly inquired, who are these? And they answered, this is the host of sinners saved by grace. Then was he exceeding glad and said, I can go with these. Yet he thought there would be no shouting at the approach of this company, and that they would enter heaven without song, instead of which there seemed to rise a sevenfold hallelujah of praise unto the Lord of love, for there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over sinners that repent. Let me ask you this. Can you go in with that group? There's only one group that enters heaven. The noble army of the prophets, the the martyrs, All of them go because of what Christ did, not because of their own merit. Can you say, I'm not going because I'm good. I can't get there. I'm not good. But I can go there because of what Christ did. I can go there. And you may think there will be no shouts. But let me tell you, my friend, I am sure the shout was absolutely deafening when Jesus took that man to paradise. And that sinner, that malefactor, that criminal, that thief was saved by sovereign free grace. Can you go with the sinners into paradise? Can you go into heaven with those who have no claim, no merit, but the merit of Jesus only? Jesus only can do sinners good. So as we bring this to conclusion, let me ask you this. How can you go to heaven? Do you know? You may say, how can I enter as an heir into heaven? 
the real heaven I'm talking about. Do you really want the real heaven in which there is no sin, there's fellowship with God, nothing but what is righteous and pure and holy, and Christ is there? Do you want that heaven? If you want that heaven, it is only because you are drawn by the Spirit of God to want that heaven. How can I become an heir of heaven? The debt must be paid. Christ paid the debt. Trust in Christ and your sins are washed away in Jesus' blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, all their guilty stains. God's forgiveness is total. You need your soul completely cleansed. Come to him. Tell him who you are and what you have done. You don't need any human priest. You don't need some religion. You need Jesus. Just go to Jesus. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. You need to be able to stare into eternity unafraid. How can I do that? Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's how. My call is to prepare men and women and children for eternity. To go into the presence of God and to know that you're accepted by Him. And there is only one person who can do that, and that is Jesus through His own shed blood. Have you trusted in Christ as your Redeemer? Have you trusted in Him as your Savior? Now, people of God, believer in Jesus, is this not the grandest of messages? Can you think of anything more grand and glorious than Jesus who hung upon a cross and shed his blood to save us from our sins? Then let's get the message out. Let's let's not play around with this. Let's get the message out. Two young Moravians in the 18th century were eager to take the gospel to this island in the West Indies. A British atheist slave owner with thousands of slaves. He said, I'm never going to let any preacher near them. Never will there be a preacher who will come here. No preacher is allowed. Now, I've heard various variations on this historical account. It's a true account, but I don't know about the details. What I have read in one account is that they actually sold themselves into slavery, sold themselves, these two Moravians, paying their passage there so that they could minister the word of God to these slaves. This, all the accounts are agreed upon. Leaving Hamburg, the Moravians from Hernhut joined on the pier, and they came to see them off, and they were weeping and crying. This was no short-term missions trip. This wasn't two weeks in West Virginia or maybe even a year in Japan. They were never coming back. As far as they knew, they would never return. They were selling themselves into slavery in order to minister to slaves. They would never return. Why would they do it? From the boat, from the ship, as it was leaving the river in order to go out into the sea from Hamburg, these two young Moravian missionaries yelled back, to their friends and brothers and sisters on the dock. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. 
I've read, again, different accounts. Some say when they got there, they were not allowed to be slaves. Other Moravians came. I don't know. The point is, when they left, they thought they would never return. They thought they would be slaves in order to minister to slaves. And the greater point is this. What drove them? What drove them to tell others this message? What drove them? May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering, people of God. Jesus has a people for whom he shed his blood and died. Tell it out. Tell it out because this is our call as his church. God is not a means. God is the end. And our chief end is to glorify him. To show others what it means that God is a God of glory and grace. This is what he calls us to as a church. Tell it out. This is your reason for being, church. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And may it be that even here today, this morning, there is someone lost and undone, that the Spirit of God may open your heart, that you may see yourself to be a sinner, embrace Jesus as your Lord, be cleansed by His precious blood, because the Lamb that was slain will receive the reward of His suffering and bleeding and dying on the cross. God's people said, Amen.